This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. On Saturday Magazine, Joy 94.9 with Macca and Janet, excuse me. Today, uh, we've got a, a distinguished local historian, Dr. Graham Willett, who's an author and editor. He's been a committee member of the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives for 27 years. That organisation is now known as the Australian Queer Archives, uh, and he's been president of it for 17 years. Graham was, and I'm not sure if still is, a senior lecturer in Australian Studies at Melbourne University. He recorded this especially as part of Joy's 30th birthday celebrations. There's, of course, always been queer people in Australia, at least as far back as the First Fleet and probably even before, once we get around to doing that research. But it really started to emerge as a kind of very visible public kind of phenomenon uh, in the late 1960s. The Homosexual Law Reform Society in Canberra in 1969, Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organisation here in Melbourne, also in 1969, and then the Campaign Against Moral Persecution, which was set up in Sydney originally as just a little sort of media monitoring group, but rapidly became a national organisation, so that within a year it had 1,500 members and uh, branches in all state capitals and most universities. After that, things proliferated, gay liberation, radical lesbians, a whole series of uh, action groups that emerged after 1973, dealing with all sorts of different parts of queer life and confronting and trying to change the way society was organised. It's worth remembering just how bad things were for people until the 1970s. At best, we were marginalised and not talked about. We were vilified and, in the case of men, criminalised. And from time to time, the police would indeed launch campaigns against homosexual men. Although lesbianism wasn't illegal, uh, it was possible to, for women to be prosecuted or har- harassed at least for indecent behaviour or offensive behaviour. And we think we know of one case where that happened. So the law could be interpreted fairly flexibly, partly whether the police bothered to enforce it and partly how they chose to interpret it. One of the things all these groups had in common, though, was, of course, their courage the determination to speak out at a time when that was a very difficult thing to do, but also to be visible. And this, of course, goes along with the speaking out. The Homosexual Law Reform Society were mostly heterosexual people, but still were taking a risk in the sense of being demonised for taking up such a controversial and, for many people, such an unsavoury issue. Daughters of Belitis understood what they were doing in the sense of creating a lesbian organisation. And it's an indication, I think, of their visibility uh, and their courage that for a long time, one, one famous example of a woman who was a member saying that it would be foolish to imagine that in our lifetime we would see any real change in attitudes to lesbianism. In fact, they did see that change. I imagine that woman might be out there somewhere still basking in the changes that we have brought about. But they did it anyway, regardless of whether or not they thought there would be any great change. The other thing all these groups had in common was that they were interested in publishing, setting up newspapers, newsletters, in order to advance the cause. 
The point of these was, of course, to give people news at a time when the mainstream press wouldn't talk about homosexuality. These groups did so. And they did so in a very positive way, as opposed to, for example, Truth Newspaper, the most laughably misnamed newspaper in Australian history, which certainly reported on queer life, but in an entirely negative sort of way. So the point of the news was to tell people what was happening, the existence of these groups, where they could be found, what to expect if you got involved, but also to motivate people by telling them what was bad in the world and raising the idea that things could be done about this. This media was a really important part of people's activism. You know, we think about demonstrations and lobby groups and things like that, but the media was a really important contribution to changing Australian life. The Homosexual Law Reform Society, for example, in Canberra, produced a Gestetner newsletter. Lots of people won't know what a Gestetner was, but you can Google it and find out. And this reported mostly on their lobbying efforts, talking to church leaders, politicians, uh, members of the community, but that creating this idea that something could be done and actually quite positive responses were often gained from talking to such people. Daughters of Belitis also produced a Gestetner newsletter. This concerned a lot of their social life. They were very keen that women should be able to get together and relax and have fun away from the prying eyes of the police and the sort of prurient elements of the public. But they also engaged in debates. This idea that would be foolish to imagine that we'll see a great change in our life was part of a debate about what to do. Is the social life the more important thing? What about public activities appearing, as they did, on on mainstream television, radio programs, newspapers and magazines, often with their faces concealed, but that doesn't detract really from the courage that they were demonstrating. The Campaign Against Moral Persecution, which was set up in 1970 in Sydney and became national, very rapidly launched itself into the production of a news magazine called Camp Inc., I-N-K, which had for the time very good production standards. This was a time when it was very difficult to produce newspapers and magazines. They managed to make a really good fist of it. The thing appeared monthly and then less regularly until it finally stopped after four or five years but nonetheless played a really important role in those years. It provided news, again, about what was going on, what politicians might be sympathetic or hostile, what was happening overseas, which was often very important, what was happening interstate, this idea of a national newspaper where other cities and towns, and there were towns taking uh, action as well, were being talked about quite a lot. And of course, political developments, who's talking about law reform, who's talking about decriminalisation, but also a lot about the scene, the camp scene, as it was called, increasingly the gay scene. This was important at a time when uh, you couldn't advertise your events in the mainstream press. Um, something like Campaign, starting in the 1975s, regularly reported on the scene. Where to go, what to expect when you got there, because already there were emerging different kinds of bars, different kinds of social life. And at a time when most uh, venues were just one night a week, they were mainstream pubs, which usually on a quiet night of the week, would uh, open themselves up to to gay people, Um, often overcharging for the alcohol, sometimes charging a cover charge, but always a place where people were able to go to relax, to feel comfortable. But you had to know where these were. And this was part of the role of the media, just to tell people really basic things like on this night of the week, you can go to this place and these are the kinds of people that you might find there. 
as I say, overseas news, interstate news, all of which is intended to create the idea that we can change the world. We just have to have courage and perseverance. There were also much smaller forms of media. I've talked about the way in which the early newsletters were gestetinated. When radical lesbians held a conference at Sorrento, for example, a national conference, they circulated documents, and they were able to do this thanks to the Gestetner, which made it cheap and relatively easy to produce the documents which were the basis for the discussion for that weekend conference. Somebody then produced a history of that event. Chris Sitka produced a history. Um, And all of that material, because it was preserved, because it was written down, because it was preserved, becomes part of the history. And you can find a lot of it in the archives. In the late 1970s, you get the emergence of a more politicised, more intentionally politicised gay press. The annual homosexual conferences, which began in 1975 and took place in different cities every year, attracting literally hundreds and hundreds of political activists. These conferences were really important. And in 1979, when it was being held in Melbourne, the fifth National Homosexual Conference, produced a conference news magazine telling people what was coming, how to get involved, which evolved, not accidentally, into a news magazine called Gay Community News, which evolved over time into Outrage magazine, which lasted until the year 2000. This was possible because of the emergence of new technologies. It was no longer necessary just to Gestetner things. It became possible to lay out and print them, which looked even more impressive than the kind of thing that Campaign Against Moral Persecution had produced. Then came the bar rags. These were newspapers produced again with a level of technology that was not possible previously, but also with social technology. There was a model for the bar rags, which is they were given away free. You could just pick them up at any venue, not just gay venues, but also um, in supportive shops and cafes and so on. They were paid for, the production was paid for by advertising. The emergence of a community to which you could advertise became really an important change in why things were able to take place. In these 70s, you get the emergence of radio, but again, just one-off programs, 3CR, 3RRR, were open to and did in fact have queer publishing in the form of uh, radio media. What all of these things were doing in the, in the 80s and into the 90s was focusing partly on law reform, which was unfolding quite rapidly during this period. It seemed slow at the time, but in retrospect, laws that went back to 1533 and Henry VIII were being overturned at a rate of knots. Uh, decriminalisation was, of course, the first task that was taken on, changing the laws that made homosexual sex illegal. But then moving on to anti-discrimination laws, the idea that you should discriminate against people, that you actively encouraged to discriminate in the olden days because such people were not worthy of being employed or whatever. Uh, The emergence towards anti-discrimination laws was important. All the way through to relationship recognition, de facto recognition, and then, of course, ultimately to same-sex marriage. In the 1980s, AIDS really hit in, in a spectacular way, in a very terrible way for many gay and lesbian people, their families, their friends, and more broadly in society. 
I've always said that we were lucky in our timing, really, because in the late 1970s, a mobilisation by the Christian right had been successfully beaten back by the movement and the community. And that meant that there was a confidence in the community. People were alert to the risks and confident that they would be able to deal with that problem. They had, of course, a progressive government and the Labor government was very keen to work with community organisations. And this combination of a supportive Labor government, a well-organised community and a media that were able to promote safe sex, something that most of us, of course, never heard of prior to the arrival of HIV AIDS in Australia. The media campaign, gay community news, smaller newsletters from organisations like the Lesbian Action Group and so on, really promoted what safe sex was, uh, how to practice it, why you should practice it, what the difficulties were, and in a much more explicit way than the mainstream press could do. People might remember the uproar around uh, the Grim Reaper, which was published on television, but in fact much more explicit material was being published in the gay and lesbian press, particularly of course the gay male press, but also much more positive. You know, you'll never forget the feeling of great sex was one of the very earliest ads. So we had a well-established and respected media, mostly print, but as I say there were radio programs as well. By the 1990s, where AIDS remained a major problem really until the introduction of the retrovirals, the 1990s became really important. And here is where uh, Joy Radio fits in. The development of technology made production of radio programs much easier than it would have been. Again, this was probably a surprise to younger people, for whom a podcast is something you can just decide to do. But that wasn't at all the case in those days. You needed to be able to set up studios. You needed a licence to broadcast in Australia in the way that, of course, you don't with podcasts and so on. And so it was a kind of daring leap in the dark in some ways to set up a a, a community radio station that was directed at what we would now call the LGBTIQ plus community. The founder of all of this was a man called John Oliver, member number one. And his intention in raising a radio station and to set one up was to give our community a voice and control of the message, as well as to support those in hospital who were sick and bringing together a devastated, isolated gay community facing the AIDS crisis. It was one of the ways that we did that, but it was a really important contribution. The mission statement reads, Joy 94.9 is a volunteer-based community radio station committed to providing a voice for the diverse LGBTIQ plus communities, enabling freedom of expression, the breaking down of isolation and the celebration of our culture, achievements and pride. All of those are really important and we might sort of take them for granted in some ways, but freedom of expression was something uh, that was not visible, not really possible in broadcast media. You know, in the small community stations, there was a little bit but this was all queer all the time. The breaking down of isolation, people will often remember listening to Joy Radio at home, uh, away from the family. They didn't have to bring in a newspaper. They didn't have to watch on television. They could sit in their rooms and, and listen to really affirming kind of material. The purpose was to build a more inclusive society, but it was one that was open to people and invited them in. And that's the way in which Joy fits into this broader process of changing our relationship from society, which goes back into the 1970s, the pre-AIDS period, and which is contributing to the ongoing process 
of uh, opening up our society to a much greater uh, inclusivity. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.